renewal, discipleship, NCAA basketball, and reaching young adults. Pete Burak is on Spirit Inspire starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Hello and welcome to Spirit Inspire. I'm your host today, Eric Huff, joined with my wonderful co-hosts and great friends, Isaac Fox. Good afternoon. And John Soule. Welcome, everyone. Today, we're joined by Pete Burak. Uh, he is the Vice President of Renewal Ministries, the Director of ID, the Young Adult Outreach of Renewal Ministries. He's a graduate of Franciscan University of Steubenville and has a master's degree in theology from Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Pete, welcome to Spirit Inspire. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, this is yeah. fun. Good to have you. So, I mean, we, we've been, what, texting for... Less than 24 hours? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you got your friends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is great. So uh, I reached out and uh, you're very gracious and quick to respond. So we really appreciate having you here. Thank you. So uh, tell us why you're in town uh, before we really get started. Yeah. Uh, the simplest answer is somebody invited me to, to share the gospel with people down in Louisville, so or Louisville, as, as, it, as it were, and I can't say no to that. So uh, there's an event at St. James Parish tonight where we're just going to preach a little bit and see what the Holy Spirit has in store. And uh, it's kind of as simple as that. The, the the work that we're doing with Renewal Ministries gives us the opportunity to respond to these types of invitations. And by my money, like it's way more fun when there are multiple things to do. So when your text came through, uh, I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. You know, it's great. That rocks. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Pete, um, we're glad to have you on. Uh, we know a little bit about Renewal Ministries around here, but I don't know if many people in the Archdiocese of Louisville do. Uh, we know a little bit about Ralph Martin, and I know very little about you. So uh, I guess to get started, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your background, um, and uh, yeah, how you got to be the Vice President of Renewal Ministries. Yeah, great. Uh, so born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, my parents met at the University of Michigan and then uh, were really very well formed in the, the Catholic Christian community that was there at the time that has still exists to this day. And so uh, raised in what I found out was a pretty exceptional Catholic family. And we went to Mass every Sunday. We prayed the rosary more than I liked. <laughs> and uh, the main thing was that both my parents really were believers. They really knew Jesus and they were filled yeah. with his spirit and they loved him and they they prayed and it was it was heartfelt and, and sincere. And then the other major thing in my life was that not, not only did they believe, but um, I can think of at least 30 different men growing up who also believed, who unbeknownst to me, my, my dad had given real permission to them to help form me. And um, I know it's not a perfect adage to sell the whole idea of like, it takes a village. There's a lot of baggage that comes with that phrase. Sure. But the idea that it really does take a, a tribe of people to disciple someone, uh, I'm a product of that. It was not just my parents believing, but all of my friends' parents who had kind of the freedom and the the desire to invest in us and help us grow. So I'd go to friends' houses like the Herbex or the Chocolates or the Rolfs or the Sauters or the Crestas or whatever, and we'd be watching football like normal guys. And uh, they'd say like, hey, you know, how's how's basketball going or something like that? Right. And then I'd answer. And then, and then Mr. Rolf would say something like, well, yeah, great. Well, what's Jesus doing in your life? You know? 
then that was, it was a, natural. That was natural. That was yeah. not an unusual question. Yeah. Uh, it was a little uncomfortable sometimes, right? Sure. And sometimes I had to create an answer. Uh, <laughs> but what it said was that, uh, and actually, Doctor, I think it's Doctor Smith out of Notre Dame. His research has shown this that like one of the major indicators of whether or not somebody will retain the faith is whether or not they had adults other than their parents yes. who bore witness to it. That's interesting. Yeah, it's just like a coach, you know, yeah. like my dad would coach me and I would never listen to him in baseball. <laughs> yeah. But then when another coach said the exact same thing, and it's probably with my dad saying, hey, I see this at home. Could you help him out? And all of a sudden I'm listening and paying attention. hundred percent. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's mentorship. It's whatever you want to call it. It's really a, a an atmosphere of discipleship, right? Because especially when it's your parents, you're kind of like, okay, well, they believe, but they're they're my parents. They're kind of crazy, and they, you know, right. they, they're in a, their own category. But when that is validated in other men, uh, in particular for young men like myself, that um, I wanted to be like, wow, okay, it's not just dad; it's all these other guys. And so, um, so I m- met the Lord at a very early age. Kind of fell in love with Him when I was like eight or nine years old through mm. the whole story that we may or may not have time for but ultimately every step along the way whether it was at my time at the university of michigan or at franciscan university or getting married it was just this constant awareness and belief that uh, god is real and he loves me was the most fundamental reality was and is the most fundamental reality of my life um and so coming out of franciscan trying to figure out how to make that a career when you're in love with a woman uh, is an interesting thing within the Catholic world, right? Yeah. And so Renewal Ministries, which had been around since the early 80s, I had always seen Mr. Martin and Mr. Herbeck were just Mr. Martin and Mr. Herbeck. We went okay. to Mass with them in the Christ the King Parish in Ann Arbor. It was just, these were normal guys, you know? Yeah. But I knew that they had a particular mission and call. And so eventually I sat down with Peter Herbeck and said, hey, you know, kind of feeling led to help people meet Jesus. And I've always kind of wanted to be you. Uh, yeah. Do you have any space for me at renewal? And he was like, I forget. He kind of leaned back and he was like, well, not really, but let's pray about it and see what God does. And so I got a job at a little Catholic school with the Dominican sisters, Mary mother of the Eucharist as the gym teacher and athletic director. And sister John Dominic gave me Fridays off to pursue ministry. And so every Friday I got together with Peter and we'd pray and dream and pray and dream. And he poured into me and out of that came the inspiration for ID. And then kind of the rest has been history. So yeah, it's been a wonderful journey and the Lord is very good. And yeah, I feel delighted to be called to it. That's awesome. So um, tell us about Renewal Ministries as a whole. Um, you know, people watching at home, uh, these names that you're bringing up are, are pretty, a little bit familiar to me, sure. but but maybe not familiar to them. So how did Renewal Ministries come about? Yeah, so Renewal, we're, we're dedicated to renewing and evangelizing the Catholic Church. And uh, the thing that we talk a lot about is we have a, a, a conviction around a message Jesus is Lord. Repent and believe in the gospel. There is a heaven and there is a hell, and it really matters. Uh, yeah. And be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. One way we kind of describe ourselves is, I uh, hope you can understand this, is kind of the, uh, the radical center. We're not trying to get pulled in any one direction. We just want to be radically in the heart of the gospel. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be Catholic in the fullest expression? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and not get trying to get pulled into the different ways that people are being pulled right now. Right? I feel like there's a lot more weeds to get into now than uh, than ever before. Yeah. yeah. So that's important. Yeah. There's a lot of different camps, right? And a lot of those camps are based on some weird combination of theology and preference and hurt mm-hmm. and yeah, confusion. And, and one way I've heard it described is, and it's the philosophical thought of John Paul II, but it's like this spiral. A lot of philosophers will look at a problem and go from point A to point Z to solve it. But mm-hmm. what he did was 
walk around the problem and discuss the context, the culture, the issues. And, and, and as time went on, you'd get a little deeper, but you'd learn a lot more. Mm. And really what's happening is you're being pulled into the heart of the truth of mm-hmm. the gospel. And that's mm. Eucharistic, that's everything. And so to me, it's obviously dynamic and spontaneous, but it's also, you've got clear boundaries that not, don't hold you back from truth, but keep you safe from falling off the edge of a, the abyss. Yeah, right. And that is... That is so important. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Like that beautiful Catholic uh, both and, right? Yeah. Most of the time, as that long time. as it's not heretical, there's <laughs> usually some sort of both and and evolved in it, of, of both tradition and movement or, you know, philosophy yeah. and theology. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, but unfortunately in our culture, we, I don't know if it's just because it makes it feel good or because it, it gives us some sense of stability. Most of the time it's like in order to elevate something, we feel the need to detract from something else. As opposed to recognizing that if I'm emphasizing a particular piece of the Catholic faith, that doesn't mean it's at the excluding. expense of yeah. or excluding something right. else. It just like there's a way like um, we should all love, value, and be part, full participants in the sacraments, yeah, mm-hmm. in the liturgy, mm-hmm. and we should have a robust relationship with the Holy Spirit, and we should honor and respect and and pray and be in relationship with Mary. And like, there's all these ands that that allow for the church to be mature, really. Right. And actually, I think it's a sign of immaturity when we aren't able to say yes to multiple things, when we're not able to hold some things in conflict or intention, maybe. And that's actually a deeply Catholic principle is being able to hold some tension in a relationship of there's mystery involved. There's, there's things that almost seem like they're pulling it this way, but there's some way that they're held together. Yeah. Like that is, a, that is a beautiful part of Catholicism. I think um, you can, I think you can see that in, in a lot of Catholic teaching. And I think it is a mark of the truth of it because it's not saying that two things are in opposition. It's not trying to hold contradictories, but it is holding that tension. And I think that for us, um, you know, we, we like the quick, simple answer. Yeah. So, okay, predestination and free will. And the temptation is always, G.K. Chesterton talks about this in Orthodoxy, about the church kind of running down that center line and somehow miraculously avoiding falling into one side or the mm-hmm. other, mm-hmm. is the temptation is always to wind up in one camp, I'm just on the free will side, or I'm just on the predestination side. Um, you know, Jesus is human and divine yeah, and you want to go, example. you want to go right. Aryan or you want to go to, you know, some other form, one side or the other. I think that's the most obvious thing that happens when it's human led, when mm. we follow our own instincts. And I think it really speaks of the power of God guiding his church, that somehow the church always is able to find the tension, hold the tension, but find the beautiful balance between mm. the two of them without going way over here, way over here, or rejecting one side or the other completely. Mm. And I think what sometimes where the the can get a little complicated is sometimes the, there is a course correction that is needed. Yeah. And so, rightfully, a certain element of the faith would be elevated or emphasized in order to kind of pull back a particular right. way. But whenever you do that, there is the temptation to then to make everything about that thing, right. as opposed to no. Rightfully, there needs to be a a correction, a reform, or something that happens here right. that pulls us back more into the center that you're describing. But not so much so that we pulls us so far that we end up back in on the other side, you know. Yeah, and yeah. so um, that was a long way of saying kind of how we see ourselves within renewal ministries. Is no, it's it's good because I feel like uh, if you're a Catholic today, no matter what one of these camps you might accidentally have found yourself falling into, 
uh, it feels wrong. And uh, I think that a lot of people can relate to having that tension right now. Uh, and I think I think you mentioned it earlier. There's a little, lot of woundedness, a lot of baggage associated with uh, believing something that might be true to an extent, maybe a little too far, to the exclusion of others. Uh, I think, I mean, there's parables about, uh, you know, being upset because someone who, you know, you've deemed as not doing as much uh, also receives, you know, mm -hmm. God's love and forgiveness and mercy mm -hmm. when they may have done the wrong thing. I mean, the prodigal son at the end isn't just he comes home to his father, but his brother's upset. <laughs> right, and he uh, won't come to the party. He won't come to the party, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. And, and I, see, I see myself falling into that all the time. So I guess to get us back on track, so that was, that's, kind of where renewal sits. Um, let's talk about, you had mentioned earlier that um, you, you had been brainstorming on those Fridays and that's kind of how ID came about, right? And that's that's young adults. Uh, I think, I see this even with the podcast, it's really weird. We started doing uh, YouTube shorts and I feel like our demographic's starting to slip. Like, and, and you know, this is a group of younger guys trying to get young people engaged even. So I see it all over the church. Uh, I see, I've worked in parish ministry, you know, every parish that I've ever been associated with in any way, their big thing is, is young adult ministry. Oh, how do we get young adults? Um, they're always asking the question. They're always trying stuff. So uh, I, I'm really interested to hear about uh, ID, maybe how that came about too, uh, where, where, that pick, where that line of thought picks back up. Sure. Yeah. So within the kind of the vision of Renewal Ministries to, to preach a message that's anointed with the things I was just describing. Different kind of outreaches have emerged to maybe put some flesh on that or to uh, put a method to the, to the message, if you will. And so we have stuff for high school and middle school girls and boys and international missions and media and all that. And then ideas you're referencing. So when I was sitting down with Peter and um, over that kind of year of prayer and discipleship, really, he was discipling me. Uh, he kept talking about discipleship. Did you take the name Pete just to not be Peter? Is that <laughs> no, that was in second grade. Different Peter forced me that, though. There was yeah. another Peter B. in my class who kept getting in trouble. <laughs> and so Peter B. would be up on the board, and it was giving me heart palpitations to see my name up on the board. So. The, uh, the thing that like affects students the most working in a school is having their name written on the board. I don't know what it is. It's harsh. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty rough. I it's remember harsh. those days. Gosh. Yeah, yeah no, it's not, not fun. So I've been pete ever since yeah mm. um but fun That's fact funny. though like when my parents were naming me they did have peter herbeck in mind as one of the peters as a as a reference point that's like, pretty cool that's providence yeah when did you find that out or did you know the whole time uh i found that out actually just a few years ago my mom was uh sharing the story oh, did I have uh, oh no shoot uh we might have to pause uh don't stop the recording yeah, we, i'll just edit, edit this out. out uh hold on what the heck happened here the right. uh, no, it's not your fault. Something. Did this break? Check the pinging. We, we might have to sacrifice Vinny. Actually, no. It's. Uh, yeah, it, it was actually. It's saying that exceeding maximum input level again. Oh, well, it's because I was like messing with okay. it a lot. Is it fine? Now? Yeah, it's going away now. We're gonna, what yeah, it we're was gonna, is somehow it had unscrewed. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, and that's it just still popped off, so it's fine. not broken at all. It was just. Weird, but Great. anyway, I didn't uh, break the podcast. Yeah, right. Good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where were we? Let's continue it. You Bing, didn't touch it. Yeah, right? Big name. No. Okay. Uh, don't edit it out. This is too real. What? So don't edit it out. It's too real. It's too real. Yeah. Too real. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Keep we it. won't. We'll keep it in. It's fine. 
Yeah, anyway, so, uh, yeah, I found out a few years ago that that had been named after uh, Peter Herbeck, Peter Williamson, and a few others that my, my parents had known. So, yeah, in that year, it was uh, Peter very much discipling me, and he would talk to me about a lot about what discipleship is and evangelization and all this, and I kind of, you know, pretended like I knew what he was talking about or tried to receive as best as I could. But what started to develop within me and had already existed in he and his wife's heart, uh, Debbie, was this this ache for people in their 20s and 30s. And, yeah. and what started to develop in me was this awareness of like, okay, yeah, we have high school ministries that are pretty effective. Mm-hmm. We have campus ministries that are doing something. But in most typical parishes, there's this gap yeah. for 20s and 30s. And, and often the response to that gap is a uh, kind of a programmatic solution, which is, or event-based solution, which are, there's nothing wrong with either one of those things, but sure. it turns into, you know, Bible and brew or coffee and catechism or, you know, Something alliterative. Something you know. boxed on a shelf that collects dust. And yeah, exactly. Dust anyway. And, and then it's like, come go through this thing with us or uh, come res- passively receive something and then go about your life. You know? yeah. And we fell into that trap. We've fallen into that trap plenty. I mean, there's nothing wrong with programs, nothing wrong with events. But what was mm-hmm. starting to be birthed into our heart was like, what kind of the question of like, what would it take? What actually is necessary for to see somebody in their 20s, 30s, meet Jesus, fall in love with him yeah. and get to the place of, being a, a mature disciple in the heart of the church, which then right. also includes a sense of mission and calling and sentness, all that that entails. Like, what? how do we actually help people grow in holiness and go make disciples? That was kind of the way we thought about it in the early days a lot. Grow and go. Uh, universal called holiness, universal called mission, great commandment, great commission, you know, grow and go. So, um, and then really kind of unexpectedly in all that prayer, just what erupted in me was this, best way to describe it would be like a wound uh, an ache for our generation. Yeah. And uh, I didn't necessarily ask for it. Um, I certainly didn't like drum it up. It was just in prayer uh, over a series of months, just really feeling kind of like the heartache of God for uh, these our generation, those who have either been in the church and had left or had never heard the gospel before. Yeah. And that honestly is the sustaining ache. It's the sustaining fuel is... Is, is trying to live as intimately with the Lord as possible and letting him fuel and be obedient to whatever he asks us to do. And so we've made lots of mistakes. We've learned a lot about what doesn't work. We continue to do so. Uh, but I'm, I, I, we, our team is just very driven by this uh, strong calling and wounding to, to see our generation know him. I think, um, I think it's a very important age, the 20s and 30s, and something that a thought was kind of going through my mind while you were speaking then. Because when we speak of our generation, um, give or take a few years, um, I'll be 40 this year, but we can see a lot in a negative light. As you said, those who might have been raised in the church and who left or abandoned their faith, maybe some who were never in the church, we see just a lot of brokenness in our society. But on the other side, there are those who may have come into the church or those who have not left their faith, but at that particular time in their life, they also may not find the direction or the support they need. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking about myself. I got married at 25. I was a convert. My wife converted the year after we got married. And that was exciting and beautiful, you know, and uh, she'd already agreed to having the children baptized in the church and all that. But then she went through RCIA the, after our first daughter was born. 
But I can tell you, it was really hard. So there's this excitement, you know, we're married, we have a baby, uh, we're going to a great parish, she converts, now we're all on the same page. That didn't make it easy at all. And there are, going against the culture, there are trends, good trends. You know, we're seeing more young families and churches. But when I look at our situation for those first few years, I think in my own mind, I probably thought everything was going to be okay if we just had our own little Catholic family and went to church. Our own families weren't Catholic, so there's going to be many things that where we couldn't connect. And, you know, we never had children before. This is all brand new. We don't know what we're doing. We're learning the hard way. And then we're really busy. So is there an we... easy way? No <laughs> children. <laughs> Yes, there's a secret I'll tell you. No. All right. Yeah, and so then, you know, we're really busy, so there's that lack of time to try to make friends. And so we wound up spending a number of years and a number of children back to back and feeling very like we were drowning. Yeah. You know? And there was good people that we knew that, that lent us some major help, but I'm talking in terms of community. Mm -hmm. You know, that is a really important era of your life. You know, maybe you're out of college, uh, maybe you're getting married. And if the church or community you're in is not perhaps flourishing with similar families, like-minded people, or unlike your experience where you had not only your parents, but all these other good you know, role models and people helping out, that's a, that's a really challenging period of life. So I think it's not just a... For the uncatechized or the fallen away or all those big wounds in our society. But those who are in that age group that are actually coming into the church or trying to, you know, follow God's teachings in some way. It can also be a real period of uh, challenge and loneliness there. And I need somebody to direct me. I don't know what I'm doing. This is hard. This is confusing. So, yeah, and it's not a one size fits all. You know, I mean, John Paul II spoke of the word program. Except for how to make child rearing easy. That's a, that's a <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. By Isaac Fox. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll write, write, write the like book. Yeah. 50 years. Yeah. yeah, and then I'll give it to you. Yeah. Um, but John Paul II, in his encyclical, that basically was the beginning of the next millennium, you know, so who writes a, 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 a strategic plan for a thousand years, John Paul II, right? Um, but he's speaking... So short-sighted. Right, I know. Yeah. He's speaking of this word program because I... And when I read this, I was like, gosh, he, his finger is truly on the pulse of the issue in the church that we box and program and manufacture and industrialize everything to the point where you meet a kid in September and somehow they're confirmed in, uh, in March and they don't even believe in God. You know, it's like, it drives me crazy how many kids I confirmed that don't know at all and i had to sponsor because somebody forced me to and you couldn't say that well they're not ready we're not going to do that because of this unhealthy expectation and john paul ii says the program is the gospel and there is no new program that you can just suddenly create and box and package and solve the problem for everyone it's it's about intimacy. It's about encounter. It's about accompaniment. It's about discipleship. And you have to be attentive to every person's heart. And you have to be aware of when should I say this? How should I say this? And the timing of that. It's not how many kids are in your youth group in a parish. It's the recognition that every kid 
that you ever meet within a parish structure is in the youth group, even if they don't come to a single one of your events? And how can you reach them in relational ways that guide them into the heart of Christ? Yeah, Pete, um, while we're on this topic, I, I've, I've heard you talk before uh, about the crisis of discipleship. Mm. Um, and maybe you could speak to that a little bit. And uh, I don't know, I think it's very in line with maybe some of the issues we've brought up here. What is discipleship? Yeah, maybe how do we first off, stuff. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, if you did a Google search, you'd probably get lots of different answers yeah. to that question. Uh, the way I understand discipleship would be uh, going back to the New Testament's uh, understanding of it, and even like the Greek word disciplo, to be a learner. Mm -hmm. yeah. But what are we learning? Uh, we're not just learning head knowledge and, and actually not just heart knowledge. We're learning a holistic lifestyle. We, the, the point of a disciple is to become like the master, right? So, yeah. in, which starts to bring into real understanding Aquinas's totally crazy God became man, right? So that we could become God. Like this, this idea that um, to be a disciple of Jesus is to learn Jesus. Yeah. Uh, is to, or to be a disciple of anything is to learn that person and, yeah. and try to model your life as closely as possible to, to that person. So, in the case of discipleship, is the process by which we become like the master. And so in this case, if the master should be Jesus, then uh, both through the institutional means that he established and the church has maintained, and then through the everyday life of, of walking with him and personal prayer and intimacy and all this, we are learning how to live as he would live if he were us. That's yeah. the way to put it. Live as Jesus would live if he were us. And so what that you can break that into a million different directions, but how did he live? Well, he lived in deep intimacy with the Father. So then we should have deep intimacy with the Father. Right. Yeah. He lived completely through that intimacy with the Father, uh, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit. Okay, so we need to be filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, right? Uh, he was obedient to his Father. He, I only do what I see the Father doing. Yeah. All right, so then what? as a disciple, we should be consistently asking ourselves, what's God saying to me and what am I doing about it? It's like two fundamental questions of a disciple. Yeah. What's God saying to me and what am I doing about it? Implied in that is that God speaks to us and that we can hear his voice and discern it, right? So there's all these angles that we can take, and which is why the, the project of discipleship is not easily reducible to a, a one little channel or one little particular uh, course. Uh, we can do courses on different aspects yeah. of it, and we do. So full disclosure, we have that, you know. But the, the project of discipleship, the lifestyle of discipleship, is to create environments where people who have been who are becoming like Jesus are helping other people do the same. Yeah. And so uh, the way I like to think about it is Jesus, what did he primarily leave behind? He left behind men and women who had learned how to be him. Yeah. yeah. And then through Pentecost, mm -hmm. we're actually empowered to do it. And then where did, everywhere they went, what did they do? They tried to replicate what God had, what Jesus had done in them. So what does Paul say? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Yeah. Right. And so, um, in our work with IDU, or the, the, really the, the work of the church is supposed to be able to create environments and frameworks and patterns and habits and rhythms and community where this, for those who are in the community, we're going deeper into that reality. And those who are not in the community are invited into start that journey with us. So you can think about it almost like evangelization is the making of a disciple. It's that, that proclamation, accompaniment, the encounter moment that then leads to, I've said yes. The metanoia, right? The Greek yeah. word of, of a conversion. I, I've been going this way. I've been following the master of the world. And now I'm following Jesus. Now what does that mean for me? And, and then discipleship is that. 
process afterwards. Yeah, I uh, I'm just thinking uh, to your point there about um, you know creating these structures and uh, and the community aspect is there was a time I think it was early 21 I can't remember it's it's all starting to blur together to me now but you know I was having some difficulties with my faith uh, difficulties you know I just gotten married in 20 uh, in June and uh, you know things things were just getting a little tough in my faith life uh, specifically I'd like to thank Cardinal Ike in the Netherlands sent me a very nice return letter at that time that I didn't expect that really staved me over for a while but what I learned in that period is, uh, you know, we're supposed to beg the harvest master for vocations. Yes. And at that time, I kind of used that same concept, and I begged the harvest master for more community. Um, mm. You know, because that was really was lacking. You know, I had a couple friends here and there. John, John's a good buddy, but I didn't see him so so often. And at that time, it was within like a week that I'm like begging the harvest master uh, on this or. or Within a month, uh, you know, Ben Hackton, familiar yeah. with Ben Hackton, uh, that I run into Ben Hackton, and he's from Louisville. Anyone I met that wasn't John Soul at this point that was from Louisville, um, <laughs> I didn't know another young person who was enthusiastic with their faith that was actually from here. And Ben's like from Louisville. I'm like, how do you even exist? Like, I don't, I don't think you're a real, real person. He starts having these cigar uh, nights at his house. And then like more and more and more men start coming to these things. Uh, and it was just, it's just crazy. Like it, it's still a movement and it's still moving today. And and mm -hmm. I can't, I can't emphasize enough, like how important that is, but also like these good things, like, uh, there is a certain aspect that, that prayer has to be involved. Like you have to beg the harvest master uh, for for these things in your life. Um, not to say that they'll always happen that way or, or just fall out of the sky, but uh, yeah, ask, ask and you shall you receive. Speak, yeah. But if you don't ask... Um, I had a similar yeah. thing, Eric. When I came home from college and seminary, I mean, I grew up in Louisville, in the Archdiocese, and I, at some point in high school, I just kind of got fed up because all the guys at my all-male Catholic high school just were not living the faith, and I felt persecuted in many ways. And obviously there was also... Well, you're wearing jackets like this. Well, exactly. You know, and I got a briefcase. And yeah, I get it. I get it. Okay. <laughs> My nickname was Father Time because I had a watch that was set to the exact second of the bell schedule. There you go, everyone. Well, Father Time. It's on my high school ring. Did you actually ring. carry a briefcase? I did. I, did. I didn't at first. I carried it like... Junior year, I got comfortable. John Soul carried a briefcase. I was also the yearbook editor, so I don't care what anybody <laughs> Whatever. Tweet jacket. And yeah, like, pretty much. No. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Uh, sweater vest was my thing. But yeah, um, that being said, uh, I just felt fed up. I was like, there's no guys that I can really relate to. And then I go to college. The Catholic Campus Center was awesome, robust, but it was 100 miles away. And all the guys who I really connected with live in different cities. And so there was this moment where I come home and I'm like, where are the men? Where are the, where's the community? And I was just begging God to bring it back into my life. And all of a sudden, one little thing starts happening. I meet Brian Kane, meet Eric Huff, meet Isaac Fox. And it just keeps Sorry going. Sorry about that one. Right, yeah. You're, yeah. yeah, you're forgiven. Um, but to me, it's like, how do we draw people in to a space where they want to be discipled? And to me, like... Is it the same thing as evangelization? Is that what is that what you do to get people to want to be disciples, or is there something else you do? And even when I use the word evangelization, what do I mean? I don't fully understand it. You know, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? 
Well, I, I think several things. Uh, one, um, for sure, it, the more we think about evangelization as a project we have to create, that then God will bless, the less it will happen. Okay. So evangelization or, or mission uh, to, to proclaim the message of the gospel through word and deed and, and witness that leads people to, like the apostles at Pentecost, like, brothers, what should we do? Right. That's the goal of evangelization, to get somebody to say, what should I do? I've yeah. encountered the truth in your eyes and your words and your, and your behavior, yeah. and now I want to know what to do about it. I've, I, I've been arrested by the revelation of God. Okay. So, um, but the more, if we think about that as like, okay, I have to almost like convince God to do this work. And like I have to, uh, I'm going to go into my workplace and I'm going to figure out how to bring mission. That's mm-hmm. a fundamental misunderstanding because we know, we believe that every single person for every moment they're alive is being pursued by Jesus. Yeah. That the full power of heaven is at work to, re- to bring them into relationship with God. Yeah. So we don't have to go into any environment and convince God of anything yeah. uh, mission-wise. What we do need to do is to say, God, what are you already doing here? in their heart, in, the, in this community, and do you want me to do it with you? Because yeah. then it, it fundamentally then makes him what he properly is, is the protagonist of mm-hmm. mission. Yeah. Or as Pope Paul VI said, that the Holy Spirit is the protagonist of mission. He's the one who prepares the heart of the listener. He prepares the environment to speak. He gives you the words to speak. He gives you the courage to say it. So I think too often uh, we... And in Scripture it says don't... Don't prepare. Don't prepare beforehand. Yeah, yeah, right. right. I, yeah. Mean, it's I mean, right there. Let, let it let it emerge, right? I mean, yeah. a good good example of this is Philip with the Ethiopian, right? Philip's just kind of walking along, gets caught up in the spirit, and all of a sudden is with this this Ethiopian guy. Yes, and right? then he baptizes him, and then and disappears. Like, yeah, and, and the Ethiopian guy's like, "Can anyone make sense of this?" And Philip's like, "Well, yeah, actually, I can." And he does, <laughs> and he brings him to faith, and then boom, he's gone again. Right? Pretty cool. Like, well, and he was the oldest Christian empire in Ethiopia after that. Yeah, yeah right, awesome. right, right, right. And so Nobody there's a way that. that the spirit has a plan that we're participating in, and not so much trying to convince him of our plan. I think. Fundamentally, too, it is genuinely trusting the living power of the gospel. You spoke of programs earlier, and and sure, it is fine to set something up with some principles and ideas and structure to it. You know, we don't have to just go off sort of crazy and see what happens. Yeah, you don't be a rebel. (laughs) But the temptation, I think, is to think that the success of discipleship, evangelization, or mission is based upon how well we create our program. Yeah. And I think it's it's an instinctive human thing. I don't think we mean it this way. But I think in a, in a sense, it's sort of saying, God, let me take your gospel and let me... It's not going to work these days, right? It's, it's, it's just, I'm going to be the one to figure out the way to get people saved. Mm-hmm. Whereas the reality is, it's not about our programs. <laughs> it's not about how well did I figure out my... 20 steps in my process and how to set up these meetings and the way I arrange my time and schedule all of this and what what materials that I have and how great was the logo. It's the power of the gospel. Do we trust the gospel? But a good logo power? really helps. It does, yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's um, <laughs> but do we trust that power of the gospel? That the gospel yeah. is not Amen. just a dead letter. It is a living thing. And when the Holy Spirit takes mm-hmm. that as you were saying, it's just us getting on board. The The Holy Spirit is doing the work. The gospel has a real power to transform lives. We just need to walk alongside. Yeah, and you said something a second ago of like um, creating space where somebody would want to be discipled or whatever. Yeah. I think uh, 
One thing I've, I've learned is that to, to try to, as much as possible, match almost like human passions with, with evangelistic effort so that you don't actually have to convince people to do something because they already want to do it. Yeah. So a good example is what Ben's doing with cigars. Like he's not saying per se, like, come be discipled by me. Right. He's saying, yeah. come have a cigar. Mm-hmm. I like cigars. Yeah. You like cigars. Yeah. What if we have cigars together? Yeah. Now he's not doing all the hard work of convincing anyone to do right. something because right. they already want to do it. And, but in, but he has the eyes of a disciple and the ears attuned to the spirit to say, when this person enters into my space or when somebody, Eric, brings a friend who is an unchurched person who's far from God, but they like cigars too. Now, all of a sudden, they're in my environment. I didn't have to hang a banner. I didn't have to do, I didn't have to pay for ads. I didn't have to do I literally had to, what Ben's thinking, like, I get to do the thing I already want to do. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm doing it, though, with the awareness that when I encounter somebody who doesn't know Jesus within that common passion, it's kind of like a third space. Um then that's an opportunity to invest in them, get to know them, ask them questions, lean into their suffering, be there when they need me. All these things that then often earn the right for them to want to know. Like for somebody to know the joy that is within you to, to actually, for somebody to know that you live differently than the world, they need to see your life. Yeah. Discipleship and evangelization, you have to have an accessible life. How is anyone going to know how you handle tragedy if nobody's around you when you handle tragedy? Right. right? How is anybody going to know how you handle losing a job if nobody's around you that's unchurched that when you lose a job? And so a lot of times uh, we try to add mission into our already busy lives. Oh, gosh, shoot, i gotta, got to figure out another evening of the week where I can do mission. It's yeah. like, dude, I don't have to go on mission. I just go out and play with my kids in the front yard because most of my neighbors do not know Jesus and all their kids come and play with my kids. Next thing you know, I'm talking to all my, my neighbors about what I do, what they do, all this. I don't have to go looking for mission. Yeah, It's right, right yeah. there. Yeah. Doing something yeah. I would be doing regardless. Yeah, man. I think about, that's a, that's a great point. And I think about it in relation to what I do because I told you earlier at a restaurant, Right. that is an area where one has to be very careful with what you say Right. So there's no chance for me to, quote unquote, preach the gospel. Right. You got to kind of kind of be very careful, especially in our in our times with what you say so that you're not seen as, you know, offending somebody or pushing a religion. off. Cancel someone. culture. All yeah. That, right? And, you know, fortunately, the staff I've got are wonderful. They're super cool. They all know about my faith. Right. But there's not a lot that I'm going to be able to explicitly say to people. And so at the same time. To your point, though, instead of seeing that as a poor field for evangelization or witnessing, it's therefore a very rich one. Mm-hmm. Super There's rich. lots of opportunity. Yeah. But you were talking about people seeing how you respond in certain situations. So the restaurant industry, and if you've ever been in it or known anybody who has, is extremely high stress. It is, especially in busy times, it's manic energy. There's a lot of raw emotions because you're putting yourself out there in front of people who may or may not become happy or unhappy. And it, it can really, you know, just that sheer amount of pressure of I have to make everybody here happy right now. And so when things go south, we're kind of temperamental people. Like this is just a known fact. Um, and so I'm glad you said that because it's really easy for me at the end of a frustrating night to say something about how frustrating it was. You know, if you have one of those nights where it was super busy and things didn't go right and, you know, maybe you've got a patron that was just obnoxious. 
which I'll say this for the public record, almost never happens. I have great patrons in my restaurant, but sometimes it does happen. How am I going to respond to that? The expected way, you know, drop a few bad words, calls that, call that person a jerk and talk about how horrible they were. A meanie. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what everybody would do in that situation. So I may not realize it, but there is an opportunity for me. It may not be something explicit about the gospel, but an opportunity for me simply not to do the, to simply refrain from the criticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good lesson for me. I think I need to take that one to think of it. Think well, another one that I found that really confuses the world is when you ask for forgiveness. Yep. So like you, let's just say you have a moment where you snap at a, one of your staff or, yep. you know, something and you just know like, shoot, I, I did wrong there. That was, that yep. was, that was not okay. To then go to that person at the appropriate time and really go through the Christian process of forgiveness, which is not just like, Hey, sorry. Yeah. But, but actually like, uh, talk oh, I did this. You did wrong. I'm very, I'm sorry for doing this. I'm going to try not to do that again in the future. I strive to not do that again. And then to like look him in the eye, this, this throws off the world like nothing else and say, will you forgive me? Yeah. Will you forgive me? And the world, the people who are formed in the world go, oh, yeah, yeah, no big deal. And, but even if they say, yeah, yeah, no big deal. It's still, it says something you've humbled yourself in a way that is yeah. completely countercultural. And a lot of times what I found is people are a little bit like, dude, chill. Like it's yeah. okay. But a lot of times they, then I say, no, it's not okay. It wasn't okay that I treated you that way. And I want you to know that I'm not going to do that again. And I, and so just like, that's why I'm doing this. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable. I'm trying to make sure you know that this wasn't appropriate and I'm not going to do it again. Yeah. And what that, what that does is it, it, it actually just reinforces a Christian worldview. It's a civilization of love as John Paul II would call it. And the only way that civilization flourishes is if Christians consistently live as if they're citizens of heaven, the citizens of this civilization and not, citizens of the world and too often all of us do this we we kind of constrain our christian behavior to christian environments and then we wonder why the world doesn't really believe in what we have to say it's yeah. like because they don't actually see it we create our, our, our own echo chamber of sorts yeah. within the people that we spend time with and we don't even try to reach others and that does it make makes it the message difficult. inauthentic yes. if we're not living up to the message right you, you spoke earlier of the ancient use of the word disciple and how it even predates who we think of with Jesus and the disciples, sure. you know, the ancient Greek philosophers. It was always this discipleship method, and it wasn't what we think of now as teaching. It wasn't you stand in a classroom with a blackboard and you put information on it and then that's it. And then you don't talk to those kids again until the following week. You know, Socrates, Pythagoras, all these people had disciples, and they literally walked with them, slept with them, lived with them, ate with them, day in and day out. And I have a, a hard time imagining that, you know, Aristotle's books on ethics would have uh, lasted at all if his disciples were watching him live like a completely unethical person. Right. You know, we're going to pick up on that, that hypocrisy very quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, that happened yeah. with Chesterton too. Uh, not not the hypocrisy part, but um, I believe his wife, he, he and his wife couldn't have children, mm -hmm. and they had this this young lady who was like their adoptive daughter, and I think she lived into the nineteen eighties or nineties. Oh, really? I didn't know that. And uh, yeah, and can, kept kind of kept the Chesterton uh, material alive. Wow. Uh, and and was over the estate for a long time. I think she's even buried in the same plot. With Chesterton mm, and his wife, yeah. Uh, I was going to say uh, to Vincent earlier. Uh, Who is Vincent? Yeah, Vincent is off camera. 
Uh, hi, Vincent. Turn your mic on. Uh, uh, do you have your mic on? Sure, yeah. Is it on? All right. Oh, I don't know. I can't, can't tell. I can't tell. You, uh, You're the tech guy today. Vincent over there had asked about... Um, He's getting married here very shortly. Uh, I'd say the best marriage advice choice, that I could give, and I, I didn't have it until like this moment, is that forgiveness answer is begging your, like doing the full forgiveness steps with your wife when you inevitably mess up. Like that, that is like, I don't want to say it's like a cheat code because it's the hard work. Like it's tough when you. No, it's directly connected to the sacrament of confession. I mean, yeah. that's what we do. We yeah, admit yeah. our wrongs but and we I, ask for forgiveness. I would we say, I would penance. say. You know, going through all those steps that Pete just said uh, in your in in your marriage with your wife is uh, is key. And uh, I don't know, I may have done it in, to a small degree at the beginning, but now I'm like, man, I, it's something I have to do. It's like it's so good for my marriage. You when know? are you getting married? Uh, April fifteenth. All right. Congratulations. All right. Thank you. Yeah. That's coming up, man. Was, uh, yeah, cool. I know. That Vine Mercy weekend. That's right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's packed. That was, uh, that was almost, that marriage advice was almost as good as Dr. Crafe's. Yeah, this was, a little, this was a little better. I enjoyed his more. <laughs> That's good. That's oh. awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so I guess, uh, guess let's go back to uh, kind of the beginning. I've, I've been interested ever since you said uh, maybe we'll get into this and maybe we won't. I, I, I kind of took it as a challenge. But uh, that, <laughs> oh, yeah. that, initial, uh, that initial conversion you were talking about when, when you were younger in Michigan. Oh, conversion stories. Right? Yeah, yeah. So important. Yeah, or your encounter with the Lord, I guess. is. Uh, yeah, sure. Point. Okay. Um, so I was, I was eight and, uh, you know, just pretty normal eight-year-old kid. Loved sports, loved uh, – my dad had been a baseball player. Uh, at Michigan, he was the MVP his senior year, so we were in this kind of, he had a, a cup of coffee, kind of moving forward past that, but wanted to start a family and yeah. all that. And so sports were just a big part of growing in, in Ann Arbor, too, the University of Michigan, all yeah. things, oh, yeah. Michigan football and basketball and all that. Um, and so, yeah, the sports were the most important thing to me. And uh, eight years old, I was playing baseball. I was the pitcher. I was the catcher. I had a really good throwing arm and very proud of it. And then... Uh, about eight and a half, nine, I uh, developed a pain in my shoulder, which uh, when you're nine years old should not exist. Right. Yeah. right. You should be able to run into a tree and be okay at nine. Right. And so we went to the doctor and uh, it was sitting in the doctor's office. Doctor comes in. He says, all right, Pete, I'm just, I don't know how to tell you this. I'm sorry to tell you this, I guess, but you have a condition called epiphysitis, which is really just a fancy word for pain. And the, uh, there's an inflammation in the growth plate that will not go away until you mature, until probably you're 17, 18 years old. Oh, wow. And so, it, yeah, it's kind of funny. It's like, I oh, look back and it's like a little nine-year-old kid who only wants to be a baseball player, is quarterback at recess, all this stuff. Yeah. Like, to get to the point where I couldn't raise my arm above my head without real serious pain and definitely couldn't do this motion. And, wow. And so my, my dream kind of popped, right? Because there's no way I could be a baseball player if you can't throw. Yeah. Especially until you're... 18 years old and so uh it was about two or three weeks after that and i've been moping around i'm feeling sorry for myself and all this my parents sat me down in the living room and they said um pete the only way you're going to be peaceful the only way you're going to be happy is if you if you give your life to the lord and offer him this pain and the suffering because i had seen their faith and i had seen them actually go through this exercise like when my grandfather died and different things like that um 
I, I just trusted them and I was like, okay, I guess that's what I do. So I went into my bedroom and knelt down by my bedside and assumed the official prayer position of a child, right? On the bedside like this. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I said, Jesus, uh, I give you my life and I love you and, you know, I want to live for you. And uh, the skies opened up and a dove descended. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, nothing Angels. happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Voice from heaven. Nothing, right? nothing. I didn't see, I didn't feel anything. I wasn't healed. There was nothing dramatic that happened sure. in that moment. But what I started to discover as the kind of days went on and the weeks went on, there was this peace that was in my heart that um, I don't I don't really know how to explain. It just was yeah. God was, my life was his now, which yeah. changed mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so then when I'd go to mass and receive Holy Communion and come back to the pew and I just started really like experiencing God, uh, in a very pure and very hard to describe way, but just kind of like, I just knew, as I said earlier, I just knew, I just became convinced that God was real and he loved me. And, uh, I really met Jesus, you know, I really like, I realized he was alive. And I could have a relationship yeah. with him and he was dwelling within me and, and he wanted to walk with me and he, he had power for me to live differently and all that stuff like that was all happening at like nine, 10 years old. Um, and then really pretty profound experiences of the Holy Spirit as well. And, uh, and then it was in one of those prayer times after communion where I felt like he spoke to me for the first time and it was, I don't know if it was the first time, but one of the first times and, you know, it wasn't that audible voice, right? It was just that still small voice of the spirit or a thought popped into my heart that I knew wasn't my own. Mm. And um, he said, Pete, will you suffer for me? Hmm. And uh, I loved him and he loved me. So I didn't really hesitate. I just said, sure. Yes, Lord, I'll I'll suffer for you. And what that led to was basically every single sports season from that day all the way through college. And I played college basketball. Every single sports season, except for one, I got injured in some way and had to miss games. And it got weird, like head, shoulders, <laughs> knees, and toes, uh, oh broken nose, God. concussions, broken thumbs, separated cartilage in my rib cage, turned into pneumonia, broken ankles, broken toes, you name it, I had it. And what the Lord did throughout all of those was it was a, he just kept drawing me closer to him because I had to just keep trusting in him throughout all of it, just keep re- yeah. dis- deciding again to give my life to him. Yeah. And, um, and then it led to different moments of really more profound confessions of faith and decisions to kind of lean into it um but yeah that, that's where it kind of came from it's just a, a gift i, I it was an undeserved gift like faith always is right i mean yeah. it's I, nothing i really did it was more of um responding to a grace that for whatever reason he he offered to me that's beautiful and think you know think if if that had not happened and you had been able to pursue sports as much as you wanted to <laughs> yeah. you know how different your life might oh, have been yeah. Drawn out of the world. It's it is amazing. Uh, you know, suffering is a big topic. It's it's a big concern for everyone, and we don't understand it. We don't like it. Uh, it can lead us to wanting to renounce or reject God or not believe in Him. But then, so often, you hear stories like this, where maybe not at the time, but in retrospect, you realize a gratitude because my life would have gone a totally different direction and what I viewed as suffering, what I viewed as, you know, why God did this have to happen to me, I can now realize later on was a blessing. One of the things uh, you mentioned there, you were talking about, and I think this is really important, you were talking about praying after receiving the Eucharist as a child. I think this is something which maybe used to be more common is the Thanksgiving after Mass. Um, 
But I think that time of prayer and reflection after receiving communion is so important. I think sometimes we misunderstand the sacraments. We know as Catholics that God does actually operate in and through the sacraments. There is a real spiritual power there. But what is he operating on? Us as humans, which involves our will, our thoughts, our intelligence. And I remember when I came into the church, I had this idea that, wow, the first time I get to receive the Eucharist, which is God himself, this is Jesus substantially present. That's going to change my whole life. Like, I am going to stop sinning. I'm going to be a saint overnight. <laughs> wow. You know. Wouldn't that be nice? Didn't happen. You know. And I think that I was looking for an experience to happen to me instead of me to enter into the experience. And for so many years, I realize this now looking back, for so many years, I would receive the Eucharist, walk back down the aisle and expect it to work its magic, I guess. Right? And now I realize, well, if God's in me at this point, if Jesus is in my heart, this is my opportunity then to say, what would you have me to do? What, what needs to change? How can I love you more? Help me with this or this. This is the opportunity to communicate. It's not like, yes, God is present, but it's not like a magic potion of I'm going to take this and puh, he is there to work on our wills, on our thoughts, on our, our minds, all of these things. And so we need to take that time after receiving the Eucharist to thank him, to love him, and to open our hearts and minds to him for a few minutes to say, okay, you are here. What do you want to change in me today? What should I take away consciously? What should I remember? I think it's just so easy to receive and walk away. I was really, have been very moved with my children. You know, they have their first communions and we go to mass and sometimes you will see that, receive communion and, you know, two seconds later, they're like sitting in the pew looking around. And then I, one of my children who's older, I've noticed so many times now this has changed over the last few years. I will now look and see silent, eyes closed, wrapped in prayer. I'm just like, it's something so beautiful. I'm like, I don't know what's going on in there. I don't want to know. Like, I just want to leave that alone. There's a beautiful private moment. But I'm so grateful to see that it's gone beyond just the receiving. It's going into the communion with God that follows that. It's uh, it's this thing a friend of mine said that, you know, if Christ is the bridegroom and, you know, the church is the bride, if we are in that posture of receptivity in the sense of sitting in prayer and, and listening to the, the priest, you know, say the words of consecration, when he says, this is my body given for you, these are the words of Christ spoken to the bridegroom or spoken to the bride. And so what do we say? But in response, this is my body given for you, Lord, what would you have me do? Yeah. Amen. Even if we don't say that out loud during Mass when the priest says that, to say it interiorly in our mm -hmm. own prayer. Because yeah. now all of a sudden it's not just receiving an experience, it's giving. This is why a lot of people don't go to church. I don't get anything out of it. The choir's bad, the homilies suck, I don't want to be there, I'm bored. Did you even read the readings before you got there? Do you even know what yeah, are you, the priest you is saying? Something out of it, are you you have to put into something it? into it. You have to really invest yourself in asking questions and not settling on these shallow answers that the church has seemingly given to people for decades. You know? mm -hmm. I started reading a book so a couple beautiful. of years ago on prayer 
And I mean, this probably sounds so stupidly obvious, but it had just never occurred to me. Once in a while, I would go maybe to the Adoration Chapel at my parish here. They've got a 24-hour uh, Adoration at St. Martin's, which is such a haven. It's awesome to be able to have that any time of the day or night. And I would go, and sometimes it would be when I was troubled or, you know, just dealing with some difficulties. And spend that time, spend 30 minutes or an hour praying, um, trying to be peaceful, trying to be there in the presence of Jesus. And to me, I think I viewed a good prayer time as, did I feel something? Did good emotions happen to me? You know, did I feel peace? Did I feel loved? And I was reading this book a couple of years ago, started reading it on prayer. And the person who wrote it, I believe might have been a monk. I'm not sure. I think he was a monk. Was saying something to the effect that it is what we take out of prayer that is so critical. If, and he was talking about mental prayer, not like, um, you know, yeah, mental prayer. He's saying if we're not at some point saying, what did I find out in prayer that God wants me to work on? Uh, or what directions does he want me to take to work on it? We're, we're really missing the point. And I think for me, that was the first time I'd ever become aware of that. I viewed that if I felt great, that was going to change my life. And I was never really taking the time to say, Lord, open up the broken spots, open up the dark spots, show them to me. And also, don't let me just walk out of here. Help me to take this back out of the chapel into the next hour, the next day, focusing on this is what you've asked me to change. I think it's human nature. We want the experience. But Christ wants transformation. Mm -hmm. I want the experience of having maybe a really powerful, emotional, spiritual moment when I receive the Eucharist. And that's just going to change my life. And great when we receive those. I mean, thank God for them. Yeah. Or that beautiful moment Because they prayer. can aid in transformation. Well, there, there, there's but a, it's not the answer. It's well, not the yeah. final solution. Well, there, there's a... Uh... I mean, I think that there's a spectrum of consolation and desolation that we you receive them. from we do. prayer. Yeah, mm -hmm. so but it's so also like he's teaching us, and he, it's it's like if I just shut off my mind and say, like like why? I guess my question is why am I praying? If it doesn't in some way involve the real hope and determination that God will help change me, then what is the point of my prayer? You know what I mean? It's like, am I just going to feel good? Or am I wanting to be transformed? Yeah, why do we pray? <laughs> uh, intimacy with God. That the more we're, the more we're in intimate relationship with Him, the more He does the work of transformation yeah. in us, where we surrender. So a lot of times it's that that kind of flow, right? An awareness of things that are not of Him or are, are not surrendered to Him. We become aware of. We surrender them to Him, so He can do the work of freeing us from them. So like a a chain of sin becomes aware because we are seeing ourselves in his eyes and it's that it's that beautiful image of really meditating on the face of jesus like when we look at him we actually see ourselves as he sees us mm. which is the truest version of mm. ourselves when we look at ourselves we see our version of ourselves which is by definition going to be false it's going to be it's going to be gunky it's going to be mm. wrapped and all this stuff and I, you're making the good point of like you don't seek the experience you seek god right and if an experience accompanies that seeking, great. We're humans. Awesome. He's given us emotions. Awesome. Yeah. But that is not the 
That's not the That's metric. That's not God. Right? And it's also certainly not exclusive. It, it does not contain God, right? Yeah. It could be of God, but not you know, contained by him. And I think the other thing that... Uh, one of the things I think that's supposed to happen after communion in a particular way is a little bit, is it's analogous to uh, a little bit of theology of the body stuff here of like that marital moment mm-hmm. of there's an intimacy with God that really the closest thing on earth is would be the intimacy between spouses. Yeah. And in the, in the marital moment, there's actually not generally in a healthy marriage, there's not a lot of focus on in that moment. How do I get better at, like, what do I need to work on? Yeah. It's just delight. It's just pure connection. It's, it's I'm just, I, you're found in me and I'm found in you. And we are, we're just kind of becoming something new together. That then that intimacy often is the thing that allows for us to hear and receive and be blessed by when our spouse says, hey, I really need you to work yeah. on this. Right, like if, if think about and this, you guys are married men. In that moment no, right, either. no, not generally not, right. If you think about married men, like you think about weird it would be, like in that really intimate moment, all of a sudden your wife's like, you know, it'd be really great, is if uh, you took your socks off, like <laughs> when you came into our the bedroom, or like something to work on, like if you could empty the dishwasher more consistently, that would be fantastic. <laughs> like that is not the time when that is communicated, right? right? right, right. But the re- ability to us receive that correction often some of the best time actually is not too far off from that right because there's a there's point. a really a, there's a profound intimacy that's happened so i think too often we receive communion and we go back and it's almost like a job performance review okay i'm with the lord now lord how am i doing am i doing well mm. am i not doing well what do you want me to what do you want me to do better okay very good like a lot of times we we i, I do this all the time and i treat jesus like the best boss i've ever had Oh gosh. <laughs> like he's awesome. He's the best boss. I love working for him. He's he's really good. The benefits are great. Yeah. Right? I, I absolutely yeah. love him. But he's still kind of like the boss. Right. And of course he is the Lord. But he's also he's lover and friend yeah. and companion. He's so much more than that. And I, I'll never forget a couple of years ago sitting in adoration and I literally had my notebook with my to-do list and I was like, all right, Jesus, let's go. Like, what do you got for me today? It's as much it's the it's the fact that Jesus is both intimately close and intensely sovereign. Yeah. It's both, and it's that tension that's you talked about. Yeah, that's right? that tension. It's living in that tension. Both. Yeah. So he's, yeah, he's got boss elements, I guess, but he, that's not who he is. And in particular, the the time right after communion when we are even in more, um, like, profoundly, materially the temple of God at that mm. moment mm-hmm. is, yeah. like, such a time to just let him rain let him be let him move let like just enjoy it which is why one of the things that i think is contemplation yeah very much and i think one of the things that's also lost in the time after communion is it's supposed to be a communal expression of thanksgiving there is a there's an understandable individual connection Mm -hmm. but part of what the the body is supposed to be we are more so than any other time in the church most united with each other because we've come yeah. to the one table to the one bread the one body the one lord and we are all equally consumed in that moment we are equally united through the, the body of christ and so um and this is just where catechesis and discipleship is so important because a lot of people just have never even considered what that's supposed to be yeah. you know i come up i get my wafer i go back and i you know check the call hopefully there's no dreaded announcements after mass is over. If somebody gives you a a great gift, you know, you're going to thank them very enthusiastically. Yeah. And I think that, and I don't mean this to sound critical, it's just human nature. I mean, I've been there a million times. 
but we spend all of Mass leading up to this high point, which is like the greatest point of our lives. Correct. And then Heaven meets Earth. After receiving our God incarnate into ourselves, which is the most stupefying thing we can even imagine. Like, right. Who could have ever dreamed this up? From that point to the end of Mass is probably less than five minutes, mm -hmm. you know, d depending on the kind of liturgy you're going to. And how easy it is for that point to be the end, right? Okay, we've gone all the way to the high point, but it's like, well, that's worth thanking God for and mm -hmm. praising him for, for hours, well, all yeah. eternity, actually. But I just think it is such an easy thing to be focused, 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 all the way up to the point that is like the most important, the most awesome, and then, bye. <laughs> yeah, and that's where I'm, it, there's so many human analogies to play into that, right? And it's, yeah. and it, it always cracks me up, like, not cracks me up, it's the wrong phrase. It always is a, a moment to consider, like, in, we've all been in parishes where um, everyone receives communion, they come back, they're all in a, a standard posture of prayer, whatever that might be for that particular community, and we're all just kind of biding our time until Father cleans up the altar, does whatever he's doing, we don't really know. And why it's important, who, right. I don't know. And then he goes and he sits down, and what immediately happens? Everyone sits down. Yeah, that's yes. it. I, the sound is distinct in my brain. I, so I hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, like the, worse. And what does it's that like reveal? A, and a creaking noise. It reveals the total lack of actual attentiveness to prayer and what's yeah, just right. It's, it's just like, we, it's okay, so I can sit down now because Father has, and I've noticed that to yep. your yes. point. Once in a while, I'm a center. I, I, I'm I'm with the crowd. We'll sit down. <laughs> I'm not I, often, lie. I often do. I right do it all the time. Sit for, because I'm, I am more aware of the presence of God when my knees don't hurt, you know? Yeah. But that's right. we, yeah. Yeah. But, but yes. that being said, once in a while you'll see a parish have where it's like you might notice, and I shouldn't notice because it means I'm not focused, <laughs> but you will notice people continuing to kneel after the priest has sat down. It's yeah. like, well... The idea is you shouldn't sit before the priest, but nobody said you had to sit when he sits, right? You know, and so that's very, it's yeah. very inspiring well, to me. Well, if you came I to our that. parish, uh, one of the things, one of the reasons we stay in the parish we're in is the after still communion. Christ the King. Yeah, Christ the King in Ann Arbor. After communion is an extended time of communal prayer of worship, yeah. mm. and the music doesn't just play one song and it's over. It's usually two or three, and you'll see people standing, sitting, kneeling, kind of engaged yeah. in the past like what it culminates with and the pastor's leading it he's doing what he needs to do with the elements but he, then he's praying he's up there praying you can see right. him praying and then what this is the pastor father ed Friedi. okay i remember um, the first time i went to latin mass when after communion i thought well this is about it and i was really surprised yeah see there was quite a bit more and more prayers and then the reading from the the first chapter of the gospel of john i was like well, there's another 20 minutes of mass yeah. left right <laughs> yeah. right because to this very point because there's yeah. something communal now that has happened that doesn't that actually deserves something yeah. beyond just well, let's all sit down now and then put our coats on. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a, it's supposed to inspire the Great Commission. Where, yeah, right. Where do yeah. we go forward? And if it's literally just rote, habitual, going through the motions, then that is how so many times you walk out the door, and all of a sudden you're backstabbing your neighbor, you're complaining about whatever's getting ready to happen, you're yelling at your kids, you're yelling at your kids, and hmm. and this is where a lot of people think, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And it's like the goal is not to be hypo hypocritical; it's meant right. to be recognizing your brokenness and letting the, that brokenness become a channel, a vessel, an empty vessel that is now filled with Christ and his redeeming love. And that can only happen through inspiration. Yeah. So. All right. Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Pete Burak 
on Spirit Inspire, starting soon. Hey everyone, this week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on, so check them out at familyrenewalproject.com. Welcome back to Spirit Inspire. I'm your host, Eric Huff. We're joined today with Pete Burak. Uh, Pete, thank you again for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm enjoying it. I wanted to touch base and circle back around to your time. You said, uh, you know, you talked about your injury, uh, and I assume that you grew, or I guess it was a condition, right? Yeah, we'll yes, get, yes, we'll, get, sure. we'll, we'll yeah. get more. We'll get more accurate here. So your condition with your arm, um, and then I assume that you did just grow up. And, uh, I did grow up, and, yes, and yes. it just and it got better. Safe assumption. Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no. I eventually the growth plate closed, and actually my junior year of high school, and I was, God was generous. I was able to uh, play a couple seasons of baseball in high school right before. But the main sport was basketball. So uh, for whatever reason, the the shooting motion of basketball was not problematic for the shoulder. But so the golf swing and the basketball stroke worked okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. Cool. Good. And then, so you ended up playing in college too, right? I did. Yep. Yeah. Started at the University of Michigan, where play would be too generous of a term. Uh, I was on the team my sophomore year as a walk-on and had a uniform uh, for two-thirds of the season. And um, my freshman year, I was a manager for the team in the sophomore year. was Didn't play at Louisville, unfortunately. That would have yeah. been fun to play, you guys. Oh, yeah. uh, played it. We went to Duke and UCLA and Alaska and all the Big Ten schools, of course. Yeah. Um, and then... NCAA. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, 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 cool. yeah. No, the, the 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 whole thing, the band, the wow. Yeah, it's at Michigan right across the front. It was crazy, pretty crazy. Um, mm. Yeah, so that was a, that was a pretty wild time. And then uh, the Lord needed me to get to Franciscan, both in terms of <laughs> from a spiritual standpoint, but also from a practical standpoint. Uh, so through a series of events, uh, ended up the door at Michigan closed in a pretty dramatic way. And uh, I was eager to, to start over somewhere else. And yeah. I'd always heard about Franciscan. It was, it was a place I, in southeast Michigan that has some acclaim. And so just one night on a whim, I just thought, I wonder if they have a basketball team. So I went and searched, and it turns out they did with uniforms and everything. You know? Wow. Look at that. And uh, so I emailed the coach. <laughs> it's and, good to have uniforms. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> the Barons, right? Just to feel a little yeah, bit yeah, more yeah. legit. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Barons. Yeah. Barons, Division okay. three NCA, cool. And so... Emailed the coach, he emailed me back about 20 minutes later and was like, yeah, we'd love to have you check out the school. And so my dad and mom um, were kind of like, okay, well, but sure, let's just see what happens. So we drove down there on, on a weekend and I just really felt the presence of God when I was there. And uh, a lot of factors played into it kind of working out. And um, turns out second day, I, once I decided to transfer, I met this very cute brunette who happened to be the point guard on the women's basketball team. Her brother was my coach. That's always handy. Yeah, I love basketball, baby. <laughs> and uh, yeah, kind of the rest is history. So she became my wife a few years later. And So was Michigan a D1? D1, And yeah. so you went from D1 to D3. Correct. Yeah. Wow. What, so what motivated that decision? Like what All was... the Lord. It, basketball was a piece of the puzzle because yeah. I had worked really hard and I was halfway decent and I really wanted to play. Um, but it really became more about like, okay, I, I really want to leave Ann Arbor. I want to go somewhere else. And Franciscan is the best combination of being able to play, the environment, the spiritual life, the, yeah. the whole thing. And, cool. and I just, in that moment, felt very called to do it. 
Did y'all ever touch March Madness or uh, that that tournament NCAA? Tournament, uh, uh, no, it, when it, the the time I was at Michigan, we were not very good. Oh, and then <laughs> That's uh, yeah, yeah okay. nothing to do with you though. Right? No, yeah, well, he was <laughs> truly like yeah, for better or worse, nothing to do. And then um, yeah, and then at Franciscan, we were just restarting the sports program at Franciscan when I was there, so we were called it was like conditional ncaa or something like that so we weren't we didn't qualify we weren't actually probably good enough to go anyway but that's okay uh, yeah so it was all it was all a gift some of the dearest longest friendships in that three semesters that i was there and then of course like the best i mean the best best gift of all time was meeting kate i walked on a western kentucky's baseball team my freshman year so i was a a d1 school very exciting but I, I was ended up redshirted by the end of conditioning. Oh, sure, yeah. Even though I didn't really understand the process, I thought I was walking on the team and redshirting was just part of it. But apparently, for those first three months, I had a chance to actually play. But I had some health problems that they were concerned with, and it never worked out. But uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, at the end, I ended up getting cut at the beginning of my sophomore year, which was actually a great blessing for me. But working out with guys who made pro the very next year, you know, being part of that environment, yeah, getting cool. a taste of it sure. was I guess all I needed for the Lord to work on my life because hmm. I got more invested in the Catholic Campus Center and stuff. So, I mean, just hearing that experience of wanting something other than just what the world offers you, which is fame, fortune, success, and especially in the athletic world, it can be very tempting to get drawn into some of those things, especially what some of the guys talk about in the locker room and some of the things they're doing on the weekends. It can be like, gosh, I want to fit in. I want to bond with the team. But at the expense of my soul. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, and yeah. so it's just cool to, you know, meet another guy. I don't think I've ever met anybody who was on a D1 team like that and had that experience on a similar level like I did. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it's really cool. It was wild. I mean, it was, um, yeah, the environment in the locker room, a lot of really good guys, a lot of guys that I had a lot of respect for, on, certainly on the court, but uh, I had no interest in living like off the court uh and you know some other guys that the really really solid dudes we ended up starting a bible study my sophomore year and um we would get together on a, on a away trips in one of the assistant coaches uh, hotel rooms and we'd open the word together a little bit and so like the lord moved very powerfully through that time but yeah it was it was it was a lot and uh moving to franciscan was like a three semester retreat for me it just like It was a a balm to my soul in so many different ways of the big public university, that small private Catholic that actually believes it was a... it was a good thing. Did they have the uh, Did they have the twenty four hour adoration? Oh yeah, in the, yeah, the, the port. port. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess moving forward here, uh, as we kind of start to wrap up a little bit, just wanted to ask you more on a practical level um, for people that are out there in the field, whether they're working in ministry uh, with people one on one, or you know they own a restaurant, or um, they teach and it's not necessarily ministry that they're doing. Um, what advice can you give? Uh, how can we reach people? I know, you know, I, I heard somebody say something about us living in like a post trauma society or something now. Uh, and I, I've been thinking about it a lot, uh, what that could possibly mean. And <clears throat> it, it does seem that, that there are a lot of people hurt out there, a lot of people seeking community uh, and truth. Um, so, so what tips can you give us? What can we do? Yeah. Go rewatch the first hour of the podcast. There's a lot in there. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can't give what you don't have. So the first, first step of any sort of question like this is just what's your prayer life look like? What's your relationship with Jesus? Uh, yeah. how, 
how consistently are you spending time uh, in silence, in solitude with him, where really the distractions are, are set aside and you're really focused on him. And the prayer I like to pray when I can remember to pray it is, um, Lord, let the real me encounter the real you right now. Yeah. Let the real me encounter the real you. So that can just be an authentic that's connection. Um, that's number one. I think also having spent a lot of time with Catholics, there's a clear ignorance of Scripture that often emerges, which we know from St. Jerome, right? Ignorance yeah. of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. And so to, and especially because so many times in our age group, people are like, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what God wants me to do. I, I don't ever hear his voice. It's like, well, do you read the book he wrote for us or not? You know, like it, yeah. he, he communicates a lot right there. And a lot, one of the best ways to learn how to hear God's voice is to read his word and become familiar with the things he says. And then most importantly, the things he doesn't say. Because a lot of times we attribute to the voice of God uh, our own insecurities or even the voice of the evil one because we don't know his voice well enough to be able to distinguish. Right. And the yeah. best, most fundamental, surest way to learn God's voice is to read scripture. Um, and I just, I don't know anybody who who has devoted themselves to a life of prayer and scripture reading who doesn't change right like it's just i've just never met anyone who authentically has prayed every day and, and spent time in the word every day and hasn't seen change in their life yeah it's just not i just don't think it's possible to, to authentically do that and not only just to see personal change but then to feel more activated in the mission yeah, because this has to do with the heart and not not just the intellect you can intellectually study scripture as a historical document and right. get nothing out of it because you're looking at it as one document among many but when you let the heart you know encounter the word you know, beyond the dead letter but to help recognize that it's the living word, obviously it can't help but change you because you're actually open to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I have a good priest buddy of mine who stood before his uh, congregation and said, I'll give $100 to anybody who's for 30 days reads scripture every day, every day, at least a chapter, one chapter of scripture every day for 30 days. I'll give you $100 if you aren't different by the end of the 30 days. And he's been a priest for, I guess, 10 years. And he said he's never had to give out any money because either people don't do it Right. Yeah. Right. Or they do it and they're like, yeah, father, I'm life is different, you know? And so, uh, I, I, then I, and then the only other really piece of advice, I guess, would just be like, I think we, um, one of the great gifts of the Catholic church is we have so much, uh, wisdom, so much history, so much stuff to learn, so many nuances, so many things, so many angles to look at everything. And that is all a gift for sure. Mm. But I do think sometimes we, we get caught in a certain, um, uh, either slightly self-referential decision fatigue of how do I fit into this? Am I a Dominican or a Franciscan? Do I, you know, do I, do I like Benedict or John Paul II or Frank? Like we get into this like, yeah. and it's just, sometimes I want to just feel like, just become a child, you know, just calm down a little bit and just uh, let's simplify it and just live from the source, be intimate with the Lord, know him. And then um, like we talked about earlier, don't try to figure out a way to do mission. Just where is the Lord already placing you? The vast majority of the people who are watching this, your mission field is what you're already doing yeah. in life. Very few of us are going to be called into going to Africa or going to somewhere else or like being placed somewhere outside of the rhythm that you're probably already in. Most of our mission fields are in our existing passions, our existing rhythms, and our existing places of influence. And so to just see that those places with those eyes is enough to get started. That's awesome. I do want to ask you too on another 
practical level Ask question. Away. Anything you want. Uh, All right. Let's get spicy. Um, <laughs> so we were talking earlier. We've talked a lot about prayer. Um, I just kind of want to know what does your prayer life look like? Uh, what's your routine? Uh, and uh, yeah, what does that look yeah, like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have uh, very mild but very real uh, ADHD or whatever one of those combinations of yeah. letters. So I, I, I've struggled very much with the routine of anything. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, especially prayer. So, um, yeah, I feel you. I don't. I'm not very good at like the. This is my time of prayer every day in this spot with this kind of corner, sure. especially with five children. Yeah, um, it impossible. Made it, made it very difficult. Made it very difficult. Um, so, the it's a bit of a moving target each day as to when I pray sometimes, which is not always helpful. But at least in the state of life, that tends to be the length of time and w- when I pray tends to be a b- bit of a moving target. But Whenever that is, and it is every day, uh, I, I'm definitely reading scripture as part of my prayer. I'm doing uh, kind of silence of some sort of where I'm just really trying to just be in the presence of God where I'm not speaking. I'm just letting him be with me. And usually uh, I'll set like even a timer just to help myself, like I'm yeah. five minutes of silence, you know, yeah. something like that. I pray a lot in the car because the ADHD helps where I have something to do, but I don't actually have to think about it much. Yeah. Um, I worship a lot, uh, different music, whether sometimes it's more of the kind of praise and worship variety. Other times it's more of classical hymns or things like that. Um, yeah. And then, and then I, you know, I, I really try to exercise as much as possible when the Lord leads me to it, the, the various gifts of the spirit that I feel like I've received through my baptism and confirmation. So, um, taking a look at first Corinthians and what Paul articulates there as the charisms trying to live in and through those charisms as, as much as possible. So, yeah, I don't know. My prayer life is is very much a work in progress. I try to get to Mass as much as possible. Yeah, there we go. Uh, we, we work in a building that has uh, daily Mass four times a day. So it's like oh, kind of impossible. Not can't to, not but, yeah. be. And yet you'd be, no amazed, yeah, you'd be amazed at how still how difficult it is sometimes because <laughs> oh, wow. the, the world rises up. So sure. um, it's like the Padre Pio, um, you know. Pray for thirty minutes every day, unless you're really busy, and then pray for, pray for sixty. Pray for yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. More another one at night. For it's like you can't pray constantly until you pray sometimes. Mm, so like you, you got to pray if you want to yeah. pray all the time. And so, yeah. and then just try. And this is this is not the substitute for my personal prayer time, if you will. But really, do try to like invite the Lord into as much of my day as possible, just to to become, just to increasingly aware of His presence with me, whether it's doing something like this or it's driving from the lunch I just had to here it's just hey lord what was your opinion about that lunch you know it's like yeah. simple little dialogue moments much like those of us who are married often do with our spouses like I'd send my wife probably 70 texts throughout the day of all sorts of varieties hey what are we having for dinner tonight hey you doing all right xoxo just like little touch points mm-hmm. throughout the day yeah. that don't substitute that time when we can just be together right but they actually they they feed they that increase time. the presence of your love devotion and all and of awareness that's a brother lawrence practicing the presence of god yeah kind of good. Thing. right yeah and and it's not you know, for those of us who are not monks we can't be consciously focused 24 7 on that correct but that doesn't mean that your whole 24-7 day can't be offered consciously at right. some point to God. But then we're still going to forget. So you need those touchstones. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, I, uh, think, I think I've shared it on the uh, podcast before, but it's a, a great story I heard years ago of St. Robert Bellarmine, in which, as I remember the story, 
he was with some students and they were discussing what would you do if you knew either you're going to die today or Jesus was coming back today or it was the end of the world today, something like that, right? And he was engaged in playing a game of chess with one of the, his friends or one of the students. And apparently that was part of his spirituality was to offer everything every day to God, you know, great, small, sacred, secular, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they're all saying these very good things, but you know, I would go do this or I would, you know, sell all I have and give it to the poor or something. And they finally turned to him and said, what would you do? And his reply was, I would finish playing this game of chess. I started for the glory of God, and I can't imagine a better way to die than doing something for the glory of God. Hmm. That's a really profound story, but I think that hmm. we sort of feel like if I'm not a monk, if I'm not a priest, if I'm not in some kind of consecrated religious life, then my day can't really be that focused on God, but it can be. Oh, for sure. It yeah. can be. Yeah. Your entire yeah. lifestyle becomes an expression of prayer and gratitude mm -hmm. for the God who made you. If you do it right, I mean, you can't manufacture it, you can't control it, but you let God transform you over time, and it just happens. You can't mm -hmm. help it. And it doesn't mean you, you're perfect at that either. You, don't, you never arrive. The moment you say, I am humble, is the moment you're not. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah. So. But Pete, thank you for saying that, because that, that really meant a lot to me. I'm going to try to take that and put that into practice, because I think it's easy to think that our times with God have to be the specific prayer times, and those are important. Mm -hmm. But then the in-between... Well, it's not really a time with God because it's not yet the specific prayer time. And those just those little touchstones are what keep you between maybe your morning prayer and your night prayer or whatever. But from point A to point B, keep recollecting you back yeah, to right. who you are and what you're what and you're moments here for. of recollection can be done in a heartbeat. Yeah. And I, I've I love asking Jesus what his opinion is on things. Jesus is like, What what do you think about this? Like and it but becomes it becomes so conversational. It becomes so um real and it's amazing jesus has an opinion about everything you know yeah, and so it's kind of like well if he has an opinion about everything and he's not trying to hide it well why wouldn't i ask and yeah. expect to hear him and it just it's it, and again i say this as if like i i walked down the hallway thinking this like it's not it's it's a pretty i i still it's still a habit i'm trying to form of consciously kind of having this type of interior dialogue with the lord but um but I've enjoyed trying, yeah. you know, and the, and it, he seems to be quite responsive. To it. And it's a little bit, again, it's analogous to being married. Like, even when you're not consciously thinking of your wife, you're still married to her. Yeah. And even if you're not consciously thinking of what her opinion is, there's still somewhere because of the intimacy that you have with her. There's an opinion. Her opinion is weighing in on your decision making. Yeah. And, you know, and then there's some times where you're like, well, I really need to ask her opinion before I do anything. And that's when you can more consciously bring to mind. And I, th I think there's something really in that to that that day-to-day -day spirituality that that the Lord invites us to. And it's the same thing as the takeaway I'm getting from everything you said is, Lord, let the real me encounter the real you. I mean, you would say that to your own wife. Oh, for you sure. Know, I want the real me mm -hmm. to meet the real her. Yeah. And that is a, a daily struggle, and you're always trying to make sure that you're attentive <laughs> and honest and open and and yeah. uh, real, and it's the same with the Lord ultimately because our marriage is meant to point us the marriage of Genesis points us to the marriage of the Lamb. Right? Yeah. So thank you, Pete, for everything you've shared. Yeah, it's yeah, so thank helpful. You. Yeah, thanks for coming on, too. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Is there anything uh, we always give our guests at the end uh, time to maybe 
promote something um, or to bring something to people's attention that, that they want to bring to their attention? Anything. First off, pray for our guy over here who's about to get married because that's important. That's right. That's, yes. Pray that's for it. Please do. Uh, secondly, uh, well, I, I have a podcast. It's called the Spirit-Filled Leadership Podcast. Okay. So if you are podcast junkies like myself, you can look that up. Cool. Uh, and accompanying that is a, a little here's we talk about programs and things there's a little course we've created called the spirit-filled leadership intensive course that if anybody's interested in growing as a spirit-filled leader you can go to spiritfilledleadership.com to to learn more awesome perfect all right do you mind closing us out in prayer i'd love to all right jesus we love you we praise you we bless you we adore you we glorify you and we thank you lord for all that you are all that you do and all that you've done in this this conversation. Lord, I pray that anything that is good, true, and beautiful and inspired by your spirit would be remembered and embedded into our hearts and minds. And anything that was not of you, Lord, of our own flesh or our own pride, let it be quickly forgotten. Lord, I pray for my brothers here in this room, that the work that you've started in them, you would bring to completion and full fruitfulness. And I pray for everyone who's listening or watching, that today would be a moment of uh, encounter with you in a way that they would understand, Lord Jesus, that your grace would be poured out into their hearts and that you would give them the power to say yes to you. Lord, we uh, only want to do and, and think and believe what you want us to do, think and believe. So give us your Holy Spirit in a new and more powerful way to do all of that. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, that concludes our episode today on Spirit and Spire. Remember to like and subscribe, and we'll see you next week right here.